been quite a weird weird journey for us in terms of you know we spent eight years building up a business that went from a record week of sales to zero revenue in about 10 days so that was uh, that was a bit of an eye-opener welcome to shopify masters a weekly podcast brought to you by shopify the easiest way to sell online and in person for a streamlined experience each week we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful businesses this is Shwang Esther Sham from Shopify, and I'm helping our host Felix Thea share a story from Pizza Pilgrims, a chain of pizzerias operating in London and Oxford, England. In this episode, you'll hear from Tom Elliott, who co-founded Pizza Pilgrims with his brother James. Tom shares how the duo started as street vendors and then grew the business into over a dozen restaurants, the programs and training they offer to prolong employee retention, and how they pivoted to shipping pizza kits across the UK due to the impact of COVID-19. Speaking of shipping, did you know that you can buy shipping labels for your orders at home, print them with a regular printer, get shipping insurance within the United States, and receive discounted shipping rates from certain carriers with Shopify shipping? There are no additional fees, carrier count, or app required. This is included in your Shopify plan. So check out Shopify shipping at shopify.com slash ship. Today we are joined by Tom Elliott, who is one of the founders of Pizza Pilgrims. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And thank you so much for having us. Why don't we kick off on how you guys got started and what was the inspiration behind that really fun road trip back in 2011? Yeah, it's been quite a weird, weird journey for us in terms of, you know, we spent eight years building up a business that went from a record week of sales to zero revenue in about 10 days. So that was, uh, that was a bit of an eye opener. But yeah, no, we started. So me and my brother, we, we grew up in pubs and our parents ran pubs our whole life. So we kind of always knew and had hospitality as a you know, huge part of our life. Uh, but we were sort of, you know, there was slight parental pressure to not go into that world. So we both went off and did university and then got proper jobs, quote unquote, and, um, you know, sat at desks and did all that stuff. But I think, you know, after a few years of doing that, we we both realised that it was not... I, I worked in advertising, my brother worked in sort of television production, and we both were just like, this is not, this is not for us. So we were in the pub one day and just talking about how much, you know, we'd wanted, we wanted to do something of our own and probably something in the world of hospitality, but we didn't have any real experience in that world. We didn't have any money. And so actually opening a proper restaurant or a pub or anything like that was just, was a non, a non-starter really. But at the time in London, the sort of, the concept of street food, which I think probably might've been with you guys before a bit more, but in London, it was just starting to happen around 2011 that like this idea that you could get premium food from a van that was actually like more interesting, exciting, innovative than some of the food coming out of restaurants. That was just starting to happen. And so for the first time we were like, okay, so we could actually feasibly start a business without a huge amount of money and really have a stab at it. So yeah, so we, you know, we started looking into that and I, we quickly realized that no one was doing pizza at that point in London, which seemed obviously like a massive oversight given everyone loves pizza. So, uh, so yeah, that, that's kind of where it started. And then we, you know, we quickly realized that the reason no one was doing pizza is that you need to carry around a one ton pizza oven to make pizza work. If you're doing burgers, you only need a little hot plate and you're off, you're off to the races. So that, that quickly dawned on us, but we then were like, so we need to find a vehicle. And, um, 
I'm not sure how many of them you would see like in Toronto, but in in, in Italy they have this amazing vehicle called an Ape, which is um, it's basically like a Vespa moat like scooter, but with a van on the back. It's kind of the same engine, so it, it's in, sort of ludicrously slow vehicle. But it's a really famous Italian thing, and you do see them quite a lot in London selling coffee and stuff from the back of them. So yeah, we we saw we sort of fell in love with that vehicle, and we thought, wouldn't it be great to try and put a pizza oven in the back of one of those? So we contacted Piaggio and said, could you do this? And they were like, 100% not, it will not work. So we ignored them and did it anyway. And uh, yeah, and good old Conchetta is still still driving around London. Well, not right now, but, you know, eight years later, she still has a pizza oven in, in, a, in a rear end. And she still, uh, she still goes about London doing events and festivals and anyone will have us, really. But yeah, so, you know, we fell in love with that vehicle. We then worked out it was cheaper to get that vehicle in Italy. Uh, than it was to get it in London because there's no sort of import issues. Uh, and so we sort of combined the idea of going to pick up this vehicle from the very tip of the toe of Italy in Calabria with also going on a research trip because, you know, we were, it was very, very clear that we had absolutely no knowledge of how to make pizza. So we combined this like money saving initiative with research with actually what ended up becoming uh, we made a six-part TV show for the Food Network, which did air in like multiple countries across the world. Uh, didn't ever get a huge pickup, but it was a bizarre experience. And off the back of that, we got a cookbook, and all that before we'd even really started started the business. It was quite it was quite weird. That's fascinating because I feel like your brother's experience in TV, yours in advertising, perhaps also really influenced that of having the series and also having attention from various media outlets as well. I think I think a little bit. I think um I mean it was very, you know, we had we had all the kind of gear and no idea in terms of in the like brand terms. Like we had a logo before we even made a pizza. Uh, which I think is not, you know, it's definitely the way advertising experience would send you, I guess. But um, it just it just kind of snowballed. And the idea was just mad enough that people kind of bought into it. And, you know, we had some really big, bigger names in the TV world who were keen, who were really excited by the idea, but they wanted to sort of delay it and, you know, to obviously take time to develop it and find a buyer for the show and all that stuff. And we were just very much the idea that like, look, we're going on this trip anyway. We want to start the business. If we get a TV show, that that's kind of great, but it's not why we're doing this. And I think, um, so we pressed on with with a smaller company and, you know, what, what was supposed to be a week in Italy ended up becoming sort of 30 odd days, partly because of the TV show and partly because we got the van and we turned the, turned the key in the ignition and realised that it is comically slow, like top speed of 20 miles an hour slow. Um, so, you know, there are, I mean, where we plan to just like get on motorways and get between Rome and Naples in one day, it was like, yeah, that's actually more like four days of driving because you're not allowed on the motorways. The van is, I mean, we have footage of us um, being overtaken up a hill by a jogger. That is how slow the van is. Just re- really making you enjoy all the sights and every aspect of the trip. And it was it was an amazing thing because we were forced off the motorways and like had to go to all these like little little towns and stuff. Italy being such a sort of creative and such a proud country, like you can have towns that are sort of a mile or two apart that will have a dish that is completely unique to that town that no other town has like taken on at all. So by driving off the main streets and like taking sort of the back street route, there was so much stuff that we discovered that just didn't exist in Naples or didn't exist in Rome because it's only made in this one town to a recipe that was developed 200 years ago. 
and no other town would touch it with a barge pole because they have their own way of doing it. So it's so it's so interesting that. So then after the road trip, how do you get started making your initial pizzas and getting people to be customers? So we got back from the road trip and we, so the road trip we, we did in the little van, it didn't have the oven. So we got back to England, we put the oven in the back of the van and then we um, sort of quickly realised that the original sort of business idea was to do sort of events. So we'd, we'd, we'd go and do people's birthday parties or bar mitzvahs or funerals or whatever it is, uh, just do pizza at those things and like sort of do a private catering business essentially. But we got back and we were quickly like, it's going to be really hard to like establish a brand in that because obviously every job will be in isolation. There's no kind of way to build excitement because you can't try the product really yourself. So you can't really get, get people excited online about it. So we quickly thought, let's change this tack and let's become, let's aim to do a street food stall that we would have a fixed location and people could kind of come to us and buy their lunch or whatever. So we came up with that idea and then we started to find, started to try and find locations. And um, we emailed basically every council, every borough in London to say, we really want to trade on one of your markets. Like, could we do it? What are the options? And they all just came back to us saying, there's no space. There's a waiting list as long as your arm. And, you know, there's not, we're not even putting people on that list anymore because there's so many, um, you know, there's just so much demand. So at that point, we started just going down to these market stalls every week and taking photo of us ourselves standing in empty pitches in these markets going, guys, like you're telling us they're full and there's a waiting list. But every day, this pitch this week has been empty. And we just kind of did that with repeatedly through all the markets um, until someone came back to us and said, Do you know what, fair play, there is a space and we'll give it to you. <laughs> So we managed to like, like squeeze our way. And so the first people to come back to us were um, uh, Berwick Street Market, which is slap bang in the middle of Soho. I don't know if you've been to London, but like Soho is kind of the, the beating heart of London, if you're, you know, for lack of a better word. It's where all the theatres, restaurants, bars, it really is where the action is. So we were just bowled over that like Soho could be the place that we started. Um, but yeah, Berwick Street and Soho, they came back, they gave us the pitch. Um, we then just like had to hustle our way from figuring out how to make the dough to finding a place to, to actually make it. We managed to per persuade the local, the pub on the street to let us use a bit of their basement to make dough in. We, you know, the whole street was actually a market, mostly of fruit and veg vendors who were amazing guys who'd been there for like decades. So we turned up selling pizza and they were just completely bemused and befuddled that we could even, you know, be there. And they sort of, they called us the apprentice because we were like running around like maniacs, like trying to figure out how to do it, how to like, how to make this thing happen. But, um, but then we traded through a winter where it snowed and like, that was the point where they were like, okay, these guys are all right. Just every day was a new challenge. Just how do we, how do we, you know, build this business from, from just a little market stall. And I think we, we traded on that market for about 18 months. And then we did, you know, every event that came away because Soho is the heart of all the, you know, all the advertising agencies and all the events agencies, everyone is in Soho. So just by being there, we very quickly were getting offers from events companies to be like, would you come and, you know, do pizza at this festival? Would you do, you know, this person's amazing launch night and all this stuff? So we, we got ourselves just, we just said yes to everything, which ended up with, you know, doing some crazy, amazing things. And we did a lot of like film set catering. Uh, and we did that for 18 months and it was a whole load of fun. Yeah, after about 18 months of just like 
bashing our way through. We opened a, uh, we managed to get some investors and we opened a pizzeria on a little corner in Soho. Yeah, and that was sort of the beginnings of our more official business business dealings, I guess. I want to understand, like, I guess, what are the different challenges you faced trying to set up a permanent location versus you guys just running events and going to markets? What kind of adjustments you had to do, like, business-wise? I mean, it was, it was wholesale. I think we were so, so naive. We, we basically just thought a restaurant was going to be, you know, it's just a van, but with a few more seats. And, you know, you pay a bit more rent, but you have a few more seats than you had with a van. So that'll all work out. And actually, it's just chalk and cheese. Like, in many ways, it's so much easier because everything has its place and you have proper fridges. And if it rains, it doesn't, like, ruin your day and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, the key one is that you have an address. As soon as you have an address, you have a way for every authority in the world to get hold of you. And suddenly all of that paperwork that you've got to do, all of those licenses that you need to have, like, you just don't need them with a Street View van. You need one bit of paper to say you can trade in a market stall. And that's kind of it. And because no one can send you anything, like, there's no, there's no way to kind of, for that red tape to grow. Whereas as soon as you've got an address, the red tape just comes at you so hard. Um, so, yeah, there's just so much of that going on. Uh, I mean... Like I say, we were lucky and we found investors who sort of trusted in us. So it wasn't like, you know, we, we started the business in the very beginning on a, on a credit card. Like we never, we never kind of had, I mean, there was the risk of the credit card, but we never had money to put into this. So actually having people who believed in us to do the restaurant meant that, you know, we, there was obviously pressure for us to succeed, but it wasn't like life or death. It wasn't like we put everything we had into this. So actually it enabled us to kind of I guess, you know, we worked hard. I mean, so, so hard, but it also enabled you to have fun. It wasn't like, you know, you weren't going to eat if this didn't work. So it was an amazing time, but it was such hard work. I mean, we were, we would get in, get into the pizzeria at 6am to let in a plumber to fix whatever had broken the night before. Then you would do the whole day of trading with all the challenges that come there. And I was the general manager. My brother was the chef and we were just learning on the go. And, um, yeah, and then you you know, you'd trade until 11 o'clock at night and then you'd let the plumber back in who hadn't fixed the thing in the morning and had gone to get a part. And it just it just was endless. But it was amazing and so much fun and like such a, you know, it was it was hugely unprofessional and hugely like, you know, playing beer pong after work and all that kind of stuff. But it was great fun. And um, yeah, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. So then how do you go from one restaurant to now having 13 locations? Can you exactly remember which one came after which one? How does it feel? They, they all feel like, like children. Like you remember every one and its unique challenges and when it came and how it came. And absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, we used to sit in Dean Street when it was just the two of us and, and just be like, how could you ever run two restaurants? Like what kind of maniac would, would consider that? And uh, and then some, you know, one of the big landlords in Soho came to us uh, and said, look, we're, we're basically redoing the whole of Carnaby Street um, and we want we want to make a food quarter area called Kingly Court. Uh, and we, you know, we want specific, we want it to have like seven or eight different restaurants with different types of cuisine. It's like a real destination place and we want independence and we've earmarked this site as a pizzeria and we really want you to do it what would it take? And it was just the most crazy, like unbelievable offer, you know, sort of like a world famous street and an amazing landlord and an amazing location. And it was just like, we'd be fools to turn this down. And actually, so the second street, we, the second store we opened was our Carnaby location. And um, 
that has, I mean, has remained up until obviously this situation has remained our busiest store. And it's just been, you know, it was the moment where it was like, okay, this is actually a real proper grown up business. And we we were sort of, we had to professionalize fast because it was so much busier than we could handle in the previous world, if that made sense. So yeah, so then Carnaby Street came along and that, that was just such a game changer in so many ways. It, you know, it, it made us all sit up and take attention that there was there was stuff going on. It forced us to professionalize as a business because it was just too much to not be more more on on top of stuff and it you know it traded so well from the beginning that it, it just allowed us to we just had cash coming into the business that we hadn't had before so it allowed us to start thinking about growing like off our own back without getting further investment so so yeah kind of be kind of be opened and it was it was great and then um we traded that for about another year and a half before we opened our third store which we did entirely out of cash flow um, which was on a little street called Exmouth Market up in North London, and that was number three, and then uh, and then it just kind of went from there. I mean, we we um, you know just as and when we kind of had grown and felt more comfortable with our three, we then were able to go and do four and five and six, and it's just kind of it's just kind of been a genuine snowballing situation of just there was never really a plan. We never sat down and said. I mean, I genuinely thought when we started that little van, it was going to be something that got me out of advertising for six months and gave me a great story to put on my CV, but it would never support both of us. Um, and actually now, you know, very quickly that, that became, you know, okay, well, maybe I need to go and help with this and I'll quit and I'll do it for the summer. And then it had grown by then. And just every, at every turn, it was like it had just moved on again. So it really just, it happened so sort of organically, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's ironic. I think a lot of people get told that they need to have a business plan. You know, they need to envision milestones they want to hit. And for you guys, it seemed like you didn't envision any of this. You kind of like to your point, you just wanted to have an experience um, and possibly something that brings you out of the professional corporate world. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think we did. I mean, we did do business plans, but it's so interesting, the idea of a business plan, because I think, you know, people just want to know that you have that you can kind of sit down and structure something the actual numbers in it are always such completely i mean i look at our business plan now and it just we were so far off on every metric and that is sat where you know we, we were presenting this to our investors who had loads of in, industry experience and are still involved in the company now but you know, the numbers that we put into it made i look back at it now and i go i would never put those numbers again they make no sense when you know what you're up against but I think people are just looking for, you know, that age old thing of like people are investing in people. They want to see that you can kind of sit down with a blank sheet of paper and like structure a thought process. It doesn't really matter what the thought process is, if you're honest, because you just don't know what you're up against until you start doing it. I was literally chatting to someone today about budget, uh, yesterday, sorry, about budgeting. And he's a big guy who invests in lots of companies. And he was just saying, you know, obviously I have to have a budget in order to like keep all the people at my end happy. But, you know, I, it's never right. And like the best budget I've ever seen is a guy who we invested in who just was a plastics manufacturer and he asked him for a budget and he looked at him like, how could you possibly expect me to tell you what sales I'm going to do next year? That's insane. That's like asking me to look into a crystal ball. So he just wrote it down in pencil, like there and then on a sheet of A4. And he said, to this day, that's still the most accurate budget I've ever seen from anyone <laughs> in terms of... But I just love that, I, that thought of like budgeting, yes obviously it's good to sort of structure out a path 
like you're asking people to predict the future like it makes no sense really you can't say what you're going to be doing next year you can say what you'd hope to do but yeah i'm being slightly facetious but yeah i mean the the idea of we we did try and do all this stuff as as these things are you know as the opportunity to open a pizzeria came along we did feel like we had to do a business plan but it was not worth the paper it's printed on it's just something for someone else to say look these people did a business plan will you invest in it so interesting. When you were having the dozen stores running, how did you manage, like, what did your day-to-day look like? And how do you let go of the control and have managers that you trust and let them run the show on their own? We're always, I think we're always kind of pretty aware of where our strengths and weaknesses are, like me and James. And I think our strengths are not in delivering a great operation. Like, we're kind of, we're good at, like, thinking on our feet and adapting and, you know, getting through on just pure kind of like passion and like blood, sweat and tears basically. But actually when you're trying to build something with real structure, that is so not our forte. And I think, um, I think um, we had a quite a U-shaped experience in it. We got to about seven or eight stores and we just, we, we had some amazing guys who'd been with us for a long time, but the kind of company had outgrown all of our operational abilities and everyone wanted it to work, but it was just like the wheels were coming off because we just didn't know how to handle it. Uh, and so at that point, we kind of, we literally were at this crossroads of like, do we just give up because this is so not what we thought we wanted to create? Or do we just need to bite the bullet and get in like a real serious operator? So we went for route two and we hired, um, we had a number of people across various different things. We already had a great finance director who'd been with us. We found on Twitter, ridiculously, and she had, uh, she'd worked in like a big private equity house and then had a baby and had just wanted like one day a week just to ease herself back in. And she, you know, she's now been with us for six years and is the FD and is just fantastic. So we already weirdly had her in place very early on. Um, but yeah, we've got, a, we've got an amazing ops director in, we've got a people director and, you know, all of that stuff that does just, you just have to have it, the process. And the, you know, if you've got, we have now like 275 people, um, you know, you've got to have a process for stuff because people just want to know. At the same time, we really, really want to believe that the pizzerias are like run by the managers and they're their pizzerias. And we really want every store to have an individual personality, to have for the have the ability for the managers to run it in their way. Uh, obviously, there've got to be guidelines around that, but we want to keep those reins as loose as possible, just to because every store has got to have a different. You know, Exmouth Market is a very local, sort of um, quite a posh area, you know, nice, like residents who want to sit and, you know, have a five minute conversation with a waiter and like might come back every week or that kind of thing. A very like local regulars. Whereas Carnaby Street is like it's tourists and shoppers and people who are just coming out of Hamleys with a thousand bags just going like, just please sit me down and get me a pizza. But they're not, you know, they're not necessarily regulars. They're not necessarily there for a conversation. So every store does need to have a team that suit the vibe in that store. So yeah, no, we've been, we, we remain like really, you know, you've got to, you've got to trust your people. And I think so many businesses put in endless measures and security procedures and stuff to protect against the one or 2% of people who might try and cheat the system. But I think the way we try and look at it is that like you're, you're jeopard, you're kind of holding back the 98% to, if you put in loads of process to, protect against the two percent that makes sense you kind of got to trust people not in a naive way but in a like you got to you got to let them kind of have have their own spin on stuff 
Gotcha. And I think like hospitality is known for a higher turnover than other industries. What are some things that you do look for when you hire new people and how do you maintain a longevity and retention for your staff? Yeah, it definitely is a challenge. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's always going to be an element of hospitality that it is a job for people who are moving through a place or, you know, are at a particular transitional period of their life or doing one thing and just using it to support that. And I think there's, there's got to be space for that. I think, you know, absolutely, we want to be a place where if you want to be an actor or an artist or a musician, you can come and work for us whilst you're developing that. And we've worked really hard in the company to allow people who do that to um, develop both things at the same time. So we, we set up a sort of arts grant, for example, uh, and um, uh, one year we did it and we gave the grants to these two guys who wrote a play and that play ended up going to the Edinburgh Festival and it was like it was and it was like sad in one way because they left the company to go and pursue their passion but another way it was like that's fantastic that's exactly what we want to be happening and i think we've just built this um our 13th uh location that that uh was open for one whole day before covid bit um was actually a dedicated training academy because we're kind of obsessed with this idea that hospitality is just such an incredible place to learn about people um and uh so you know my my feeling about it is like go go and do an engineering degree because that's what your mum and dad want get that degree under your belt and then rather than going and sitting in a big engineering firm uh and you know doing photocopying for three years you should then leave university and come and do three years in hospitality and just learn you, you know you you end up like managing teams of people you're dealing with customers you're just you're just dealing with people at every single turn and i think what you learn through that how to manage people is valuable for whatever you end up going on to do. And a percentage of those people who come into hospitality will get the bug and will, you know, want to be operations directors and managing directors and be in restaurants for a long time. And, and you know, there are plenty of people in our, in our company that have, that have done that and, you know, absolutely love what they do. And there are plenty of people who use it as a stepping stone. But I think it's, it's so often, like, considered, like, not a proper job. Uh, and actually, I think there's so little truth to that in terms of it's all about attitude, really. If you've got the right attitude, you can get to the top of the business very quickly because it is a very people focused, attitude dependent business. And I think once you get once you get to the top, you can earn certainly, you know, the managers of the stores of our stores are earning a huge amount more than I was earning in advertising as you know, in the first five years. So you know, this this perception that it's just a bit of a dead end thing is, is something that we really want to change. Um, so, yeah, no, we, you know, we work really, really hard to to look after people, to make sure they're treated properly. And, you know, our, our retention rate, there's still there's still a high turnover compared to, you know, working for a law firm or something. But um, compared to the industry, I think we, we do a good job of keeping keeping our people. That's amazing to hear. I also feel like hospitality is one of the places where you have that instant gratification. You can see how something is made and it being enjoyed by someone right in front of your eyes. So it's so nice to work at a place where people are coming to have fun. Like that's actually a really lovely thing. Uh, and the other thing about hospitality is it just has so many like kind of KPI style metrics. It's kind of like a video game. There's like the sales numbers, but there's also, you know, there's kind of guests per hour. There's, uh, you know, obviously profitability and, you know, table turn time there's just so many things that you can go right i want to see if i can improve that number and you can really get excited about it obviously like you know google scores and TripAdvisor scores all that stuff there's just so many things that you can 
as a as a manager of a store get your teeth into and visibly see an impact within days or weeks which actually is is hugely gratifying in a job because you can you know you can really see the results of your your efforts. Let's talk about COVID and also the the immediate impact that it has had on you guys and also your pivot. Yeah, so I mean it certainly was immediate. Like I say we went from record sales week to zero in about 10 days, which was pretty incredible. Um, we had quite an interesting early experience with it in that we, we employ a lot of Italian guys who are some of our, obviously our pizza chefs primarily. And um, Italy was experiencing such a different thing to London in the very early days of this. So we were getting, so, you know, we were getting a lot of guys who were getting some very sort of scary messages from Italy they obviously were coming through on the news and things, but you had the UK government very much saying like, it's kind of business as normal, like we're going to just ride through this and almost like a feeling that it wasn't coming here. And then you had the Italian guys in our business going, I'm getting called from my parents saying they'll pay for my rent if I just go and sit at home. Like they're terrified that I'm still going to work type thing. So that was, that kind of caught us off guard a bit because I think, you know, that, that was like an early warning sign. But then... Yeah, I mean, I remember going out on a Sunday just on my Vespa and just going to like as many stores as I could just to talk to people and people were really scared. But actually at that point, I was still like, you know, this is going to impact the business, but it's probably not going to be nuclear. And then obviously, two, not even two weeks later, we were fully closed. But we managed to trade up up until... Um, so the, the government here have done this thing called a furlough scheme, which is quite amazing where the, the, the government are paying for 80% of workers salaries to not work so so every so we never we managed to trade up to the point that that scheme was announced at which point we then closed all the pizzerias everyone gets to go home and they still get 80 percent of the salary they were getting before this all happened um that's still really really hard because obviously in hospitality um a big part of your salary is tips or like um and uh tips obviously did not count in this scheme so it, it, I mean, I'm not going to show away from the fact that it has hit our guys really hard. And we're, that's why we're trying to get more stores open to get people back into 100% pay. But um, yeah, we traded up to the up to the day that the furlough scheme was announced. So we didn't have to make anyone redundant, which was amazing. And um, we, yeah, we sat sort of slightly with our head on our hands for a couple of weeks going like, oh my God, I can't believe all this has gone right, like in a, in a heartbeat. And then, um, yeah, and then we managed to... We decided we really wanted to open a store and actually within even two weeks, like the sentiment of the team had changed and people wanted to come back to work rather than being afraid to come to work. So we decided to open uh, our store in Victoria, which is right in the centre of London um, and uh, right next to Buckingham Palace, actually. We've actually sent pizza to the Queen during lockdown. I'm not sure if it's definitely the Queen, but definitely to Buckingham Palace. We sent 30 pizzas to Buckingham Palace, which was amazing. Uh, Yeah, so no, we reopened that store and then on, on the side, we, you know, we opened it for Deliveroo, which is sort of like a delivery third party. Um, and, you know, we just do delivery to people's homes. And we kind of always knew in the back of our mind that actually commercially that wasn't going to work really in terms of like if you really stack it all up. So we were kind of thinking of ways we could we could try and find revenue. And my brother, being the genius that he is, just sort of contacted me on one day. And was just like, I've been having this thought about could you make make-at-home kit, which is something we talked about doing in the past but never actually done. Uh, and could you actually just, if you put it, chill the kit and then put it in with an ice pack, and there are these, these packaging called wool cool, which is essentially like lamb's, sheep's wool, 
in in the in the in a plastic case. So you put the pizza box into it. It's in, it's surrounded by wool, and then you've got an ice pack between the wool and the pizza box. You can actually send it through the post, and it will turn up perfect temperature. Like it, it just works. So anyway, he sent the first one to me, and it turned up, and it was everywhere. I mean, every the tomato sauce, the cheese, the dough had exploded. It was all together. It was like pizza soup in a bag, but it was cold. So we were like, okay, maybe we're on something with this. So we kind of played around with it, you know, with different pots and different designs and what have you. Um, yeah, and about you know, about two weeks later, we had we had a kit that we thought we'd sent to a few people across the country, and it worked. And we then, um, yeah, we then started reaching out, being like, how do we sell this? And just it, the word that kept coming back was Shopify. You know, if you need to try and sell something online you should just build a Shopify page. Um, and we had not, we had, you know, I'd never done that. We had a website obviously, but it'd be, I had no, no experience of doing e-commerce whatsoever. So yeah, we set up a, we, we kind of downloaded a, a Shopify page and, uh, oh, you know, we set up a Shopify page. It was very rudimentary, if I'm honest, like, you know, the pictures were a bit all over the shop and the text was just Helvetica and it was just black and white. It did have our logo on it, which was pretty good, but you know, it was, it was functional. But that's the key word. It was functional. And actually, so we got this site up and we were super proud that it, it was even there. Linked it to our website, obviously. And then we, the target for the kits was 100 a week. That was kind of like, if we could possibly do that, that'd be really cool. And we put 50 up on the first day. We put the shop live at 9am and put 50 kits up and expected to sell them over the course of that week. And we sold those 50 kits in 20 seconds. And we were like, Wow. Oh my, I mean, that's a testament to all the hard work you guys have done over the years and the fact that your customers are missing you guys. I, I, th I think that, I think that's true. And I think, you know, it was, it's a perfect storm for it, obviously, because restaurants are closed. People love pizza and like specifically Neapolitan pizza. And, you know, they, they couldn't get ours. You know, we have built, built a name for ourselves over eight years. So there, there were, there were a few kind of perfect times in the fire, but it just it just completely caught us off guard. So we did so we did that fifty. Then we did another fifty the next day, and again it sold in twenty seconds. And yeah, obviously with the Shopify stats and stuff, you're just kind of bewildered by all these stats. But I think on that second day we had like six hundred people try to buy one in the first three minutes, and we were like, and at this point we have literally not we've posted about it on Instagram. That's it, <laughs> and we're like, this is insane. So then on the third day, we put up 1,100 kits. And we, we, because we didn't really know how to, again, we, you know, it was all trying to find our way. We didn't know how to make a sort of date picker on a, on a product so you could get a delivery day. So we just made seven different products. They each had a date that they would be delivered. So it was like a pizza kit to be delivered on the 7th of March was a product. Pizza kit to be delivered on the 8th of March. So we just made eight products. We put up 1,100 kits amongst those. Uh, it was five. It was five delivery days. And I think we did uh, 300 kits on one day and 200 on the other days. We put them up um, on a Saturday morning, expected that to last for weeks then. And we sold those 1150 minutes. And we were like, wow, that was, the, I mean, that, just to put it in context, is the busiest trading hour in the history of Pizza Pilgrims. And all of our stores were closed. So it's just this like amazing thing. We're like, wow, we have, we really are just blown away by the positivity of it. And I think... So yeah, now, you know, our original target was 100 a day, uh, 100 a week, sorry, was our original target. And we're now doing, I mean, yesterday we packed 750 kits in a day and distributed them the whole way across the country. And we're still not able to fulfill, like, we are still not able to 
get ahead of the demand that's coming. Um, so, you know, it's just been this amazing. So, you know, we've had to completely rip up the rule book, turn the pizzerias into like production lines. The, the teams have been just absolutely amazing of just like kind of getting on board with the fact that we've got to adapt and we've got to, you know, the job that they signed up to do, which is be a waiter or whatever, is now actually helping us to pack these kits. But, um, you know, it's allowed us to take more people out of the furlough scheme and get them back to full pay. And um, we've now uh, we've now uh, set up a lovely, much sexier new uh, Shopify page that has got a date picker that is green using a company called Blue Horizons, who've been fantastic and helped us build, um, you know, build a, just a much, much slicker version. And it now, you know, it talks to our courier drivers and it, you know, it's amazing. And that's four weeks down the line. You know, we, we really have something that there's still quite a lot of, you know, stuff going on and it's been hard work, but it's, you know, it feels like a proper, a proper e-commerce business that we just didn't even exist a month ago. And so how many stores are kind of in operation in helping to build the kids? Just one store, but we're opening a second store next week um, to do that. And I think we're, um, yeah, I mean, we've now to date in four weeks, we've done um, around 10,000 kits, um, which is, which is like, and, and that has absolutely been held back by our operations. Like, right as of, I mean, the new site went live yesterday and you can now pick a date, but the earliest date you can pick is something like the 5th of June. Like and, and and during this time, a lot of the sales that were happening were happening. You could only get a kit like three weeks down the road. So it wasn't like you go on the website and buy a pizza kit and get it tomorrow. It was like people were buying them to receive them weeks away. So as our operations pick up and we get to the point, we're hoping by the end of this month that we'll be near enough at the point where you can order it on a Monday and get it on a Tuesday. And at that point, you know, at that point, it's such a different prospect because, you know, it's just more casual users will have a go at it. I think the the bit that's been truly amazing is um, the commercials have been have been fantastic, but they're very much a sticking plaster on the much bigger problem. But um, the, the the bit that's been phenomenal is the sort of social media positivity. Like we spent obviously eight years building the brand, and we I think we had about thirty odd thousand Instagram followers when we went into lockdown. Since we launched the kits four weeks ago, we've now got fifty thousand. So we've put on over twenty thousand followers in four weeks because everyone who gets a kit makes it and shares it and we've been rating them on our social media like out of 10 each pizza and we're literally getting three to four hundred messages like individual instagram stories a day tagging us saying like this was great here's my kit please rate it so you know it's just just so many people going like this is the best day i've had out you know in lockdown and that is the bit that's amazing because it's keeping the brand uh, you know the front of people's minds it's just creating lovely positivity in the company and it's just so nice to feel like you're doing something that you know it's just it's just a ray of light in all this kind of madness um yeah and yeah i think you know people love the experience i think a, a part of this is getting a pizza and eating a pizza and a, i think much larger part of it is like doing something together with someone that's something you haven't done before maybe using just a frying pan and a grill you can make like a really really good stab at a Neapolitan pizza um, that I think up to now everyone thought you needed a massive domed oven for. So no, we've been bowled over by it. And we really believe actually that, that this has got legs after lockdown. I feel like eating out and just hospitality, it's 
such a social interaction. And then for once, you're getting even more intimate at a distance, like people are letting you into their homes, they're they're showing you like their countertops. So it's it's a really cool like turn of events and how you guys have adapted. It's amazing to, to, as you say, get more intimate connections with people when you can't can't even work on the zero pizzerias. Obviously, we don't know exactly how long certain restrictions will be, but do you think there is going to be at a point where you feel like the income from this initiative will be on par with what was happening before with having actual brick and mortar stores? I don't. I don't really know. I mean, I think it's such a different sort of P and L structure, for lack of for lack of you know boring stuff. It's a very different you know gross margin, all that kind of thing. But I think. It, what it's definitely going to do is help us get through this next three months, because I think, you know, there's going to be restrictions will be lifted and obviously we're desperate to reopen the pizzerias. You know, that's what we want to do. But we may be told that we can only have 50 percent capacity. And at that point, you know, it's very, very hard to make a restaurant business work when you can't fill it. So, you know, there's going to be challenges to come for sure. And I think if nothing else, this initiative is going to help us get through that. But I think, you know, maybe I'm an eternal optimist, but. I really think, you know, to, to your exact point earlier of like, you are now not going to an office anymore. Like that's not going to happen again. So, you know, people are going to be at home more. And that that idea that you could actually get a kit delivered and make it at home and have the time to do that is, I think, something that will change. It's not going to change wholesale, but even if 20% of people suddenly find themselves in that situation where they're working from home two days a week more than they were, that's a person that A, is not coming into town to have a pizza but B, they're at home, able to receive a package, you know, with the commuting time that they didn't have to, to actually spend cooking with their family or trying something new. So, yeah, I, I really think it will be something that, that continues, to, continues to be around after this. And, you know, bearing in mind that we're still not able to keep up with demand, but we haven't spent one pound on marketing to date. It's like, it's still, it's still a crazy thing. Like, we, we haven't even tried to sell this yet. Um, which is exciting. And I, I just think the most important thing is, you know, again, Shopify can tell us the return rate. We've got about 9 or 10% return rate on our customers. So, like, people are coming back to buy a second one, which is so gratifying. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's a big old learning curve. And, what you know, what we, we, you know, we just don't know anything about e-commerce at all, but we are learning every day. And it's been it's been quite, quite a fun, quite fun journey. Um, and... It feels like being a startup again, like genuinely the bit, you know, I was talking about, you know, what we're good at and what we're not. I think, I think me and my brother are quite good at this bit. Like the, the every day presents a new challenge that you didn't expect. You know, it might be ice packs aren't working or it might be the driver's not turned up or the website's crashed. Whatever it is, like things come out of nowhere and you've got to solve them on your feet. And that, you know, it's really fun. And it really has felt like that for the last four weeks of like, Every day is a new challenge, which is cool. I want to touch upon the fact that you said you're an internal optimist. I feel like that's you kind of need a dash of that for entrepreneurship. But what do you think like that kind of kept you guys going? Because like even early on for, you know, someone else, they might have felt like, well, all these are markets are not letting us in. That would have been a turning point for you guys to just give up on this. And even along the way, there's just so many other instances with opening additional shops, figuring operations, and even now with like COVID, these are all breaking points, but somehow you've held on. What do you think is the thing that is keeping you guys going and driving you guys forward? 
I think it is just that sort of that sort of pure kind of energy of having something that is is new and fragile and like needs constant attention and has problems that you it's just it's just exciting and energizing and every day feels like a new thing and I think we've always had you know one of our company mantras has literally always been positivity um that now manifests itself as enjoy yourself is one of our country our company you know um pillars but you know being positive about the situation in front of you and finding a way to to resolve it in a in a positive way is you know it's the reason that any I think any entrepreneur really does what they do because there are so many reasons to not start your own business you know anyone can tell you that the failure rate's huge and that you know it's not safe economically safe for you and that you, you, I mean the, the stats just tell their own story so you've got to be this like insane optimist to get through that you know the, I remember well it, it's happened again with this but when I first started I said oh, I'm going to quit my job in advertising and go and start a pizza van like just the raised eyebrows from you know, your peers, your mates, your parents, like everyone is just like, really need to sit down and think about this very hard. Because it was sort of, you're just engineered to be told that like, that's just a crazy thing to do. And the exact same thing happened with this, you know, you call up a packaging company or a courier company and go, so we want to start sending pizza through the post. And this is the plan. And they're just like, okay, we'll only do that for cash up front, because <laughs> this does not sound it will work. So it's amazing that like, you know, everyone's just engineered to like distrust that kind of stuff. So I don't know, you just, you've got to have faith that, you know, what, what you're, what you're going to do is going to work. And obviously not everything will. We've had so many things that have failed. Pizza soup. We decided we were going to sell pizza soup about seven, six years ago when we opened Exmouth Market, uh, which was just like tomato and basil soup with like a little cheese calzone thing. Yeah. Complete flop. World is not ready for pizza soup, but <laughs> Yeah, you've got to have some failures as well. That's how you learn. Definitely, definitely. I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to all the things that you guys are going to do and just keeping up to date to your journey. I feel like the next part is you need to write this into like a novel or like a sitcom. Who knows what's going to happen next, but I think that's, that's what's fun about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, before we sign off, I'm going to ask a few questions for selfish purposes because I have been following you guys since the early days where Cupcake Gemma mentioned you guys. and uh... How do you follow from Toronto Cupcake Gemma? She's got a pretty global presence, I guess. Yes, I think it's it's like, well, I love Jamie Oliver and I think he featured her, then I followed her and then she's showcasing, you know, street food and different things. So the crazy chain of events. Okay, so how many pizzas do you think that you and your brother have made until you guys felt like you were confident to serve it to someone else? That's such a good question. We... We were very conscious and have always, uh, certainly in the early days, we were very, very conscious that we didn't present ourselves as the experts. We actually, our kind of whole, if there was a strategy, we, we were pretty aware that we had not made pizza. And there's this very sort of Italian thing where, you know, it, the, pizza is actually harder than it looks, I guess. And Italians are very, very suspicious of anyone who says they're just going to turn up and make pizza. And you go to Naples and they'll be like, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and I'm still learning and whilst that's kind of true you know there's also a lot of like kind of mythology around that but we were very very conscious that we didn't we didn't want to turn up really not knowing what we were doing and go look at our amazing pizza that we're making aren't we amazing so we kind of took the exact opposite approach and we just kind of tried to bring everyone on the journey with us so like the first thing we ever did I mean, we did some pizza for mates and what have you but then we we had this like blogger night and rather than get all the bloggers down and make them pizza and go isn't that a delicious pizza 
we kind of involved them in the process of designing the product. So we like, we turned up and we said, right, here are five mozzarellas that we, can we try them all together and see which one is our favorite? And then like, kind of let's try three different tomato sauces and then let's all try and make a pizza together. And we kind of like the, the kind of, the vibe was we're learning. We are learning how to do this and we want your support to help us get to the best end point. And I think that certainly from a British sort of cultural point of view is so much more endearing than turning up and going, hey, we're amazing. We make great pizza and don't you think we're great? Um, so yeah, so we really like really tried to be really candid and especially on social media and stuff about all the stuff that went wrong, all the challenges we were having. I remember like on day five or something of being on the street market we forgot to put the yeast in the dough so like the obviously got to we got to like the day of cooking obviously you make the dough before so there's no way to like remake the dough we got to like the day it was happening and realized that we'd made basically like flatbreads essentially not not pizza basically so we kind of trying to find a way to spin that and we the spin we came up with is that we support chelsea football club and that night they happened to be playing napoli football club in the champions league and so we basically brought this big sign saying, we're Chelsea fans, for one day only, we can't make Neapolitan pizza, we're going to make Roman-style pizza, which is thinner and crispier and much more like... And we kind of spun it that way, of just like... And it was kind of absolute rubbish, really, but it was also, it was, again, like a positive spin on a potential... I think another company would have gone, well, we have to close down and start tomorrow. And actually, we didn't do that. And I think those, those kind of examples of like, how do we spin this as positively as we can are crucial. Yeah, I love that. And it shows the kinds of people that you guys are. So I love it. Okay, what about some controversial toppings? How do you feel about the typical controversial toppings like anchovies and like pineapples and things of that sort? It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so we're right. We're actually writing a book about pizza at the moment. And uh, one of the one of the sections is is controversial toppings. And uh, yeah, I mean, you've pretty much named the two straight out. Um, But Anchovies, I love. We have a pizza with anchovies on the menu. It sells really, really well. It definitely divides opinion, but um, it's not kind of controversial in that like people don't go. People hate anchovies, but they don't hate people who like anchovies. <laughs> Whereas pineapple kind of goes to the next level of like, I am disgusted that you would put pineapple on a pizza, and I just think you are a bad person for doing it. Me, me and my brother divide equally down the middle. I personally hate pineapple on pizza. He likes it. We did, um, probably a couple of years ago now, we decided we'd just take it head on. And we did, uh, we made a pizza called the Hawaii Knot. And uh, like it had roasted pineapple and then do on it. And every pizza that was bought in store came with like a voting slip. And you had to, as you left, you had to vote whether like pineapple should belong on pizza or not. Uh, and it, won, it overwhelmingly won, but obviously it was completely skewed because... Um, you know, you wouldn't buy a pizza with pineapple on it if you didn't like pineapple on pizza. So it, it was a strange one, but it was, it, you know, it's, it's fun to play with that. And I think we walk the line all the time of like, we really want to be authentic and all of our flour, tomatoes, mozzarella still comes from Naples and there's no messing. And if you get a margarita, we want it to be like as authentic as it can be. But at the same time, you've got to have fun and like, you've got to try new things. And I think for a long time, Naples was very much of the opinion, like this was the recipe that was dreamed up in 1870 and you you do not mess with it. And if you do, we're going to like get cross with you. And now Naples are changing and there's so many more chefs doing more interesting stuff. But 
But I do agree that, like, you know, a margarita done, a Neapolitan margarita done well is perfection and you shouldn't mess with it. But that shouldn't mean that you shouldn't try other stuff over here. So, um, yeah, and then actually as part of this book research, we went to this incredible pizzeria called uh, Franco, Pe Franco Pepe. Um, in, uh, it's just outside Naples, in the hills outside Naples. It's kind of often regarded as, like, the number one pizzeria in the world. And this guy, Franco Pepe, is just completely obsessive about pizza to the point of... He's just unbelievable. It's, it's deadly serious to him. So we interviewed him, and then he has on his menu a pizza with pineapple on it. Um, oh. Yeah, and it's like he is the most... And he, he his kind of point was everyone's so quick to write it off. I wanted to prove that actually you should never write anything off. That was kind of the basis for the dish. So actually the, the, the pizza itself is not... It's kind of more like a calzone and the, the pineapple's hidden in it. Because um, the word for hidden and the word for pineapple in Italian is very similar, so there's like a play of word. There's a play on words there, but I mean that's the ultimate answer. Like any you know massive Italian pizza snob, of which there are many, will say to you, "You're an idiot. You wouldn't put pineapple on pizza." And actually, all you need to do is tell them that Franco Pepe has a pizza with pineapple on it, and that's kind of the end of the conversation because he is like pizza god. Nice. The ultimate answer. Okay. Well, I feel like that fits like my last question is, you know, things that you're looking forward to and plans for the future, which is perfect about your book. When is that coming out? So it is now coming out in November. It's coming out, um, it's coming out in the, in the UK and the US on something like the 6th of November. And it's kind of just a celebration of pizza in all of its forms and all of the amazing people that sale in pizza uh like it's just we, we we've done a we did a book before and it was we were obviously newer to the scene and we were a bit more naive and we didn't really know what we wanted anyway and so we ended up doing a book that was much more like italian food recipes and it was sort of like the idea of you know our trip through italy we you know and it had pasta in it and it had you know lots of things that actually we have no authority in like we don't we don't make pasta now so we, we've wanted for ages to do a book that really celebrates um, pizza primarily and it's got lots of recipes and it's got how to make great Neapolitan dough and how to make Roman pizza and how to make New York style pizza but it's also got city guides so we've got like city guides to Chicago, New York, Naples, London um, uh, you know others of you know which pizzeria is the best and why we've got interviews with like famous pizza people from across the world from like Tony Gemignani to um, the CEO of Pizza Hut to you know, the ops director of Domino's, like it's really to kind of get everyone in them. And then we've got, you know, our favorite pizzerias from the movies in there. We've got like body language coaches saying like, you know, how you eat your pizza. What does it tell you about you? Like the, you know, just lots of fun stuff. I mean, there's just this thing about pizza that, you know, everyone loves food. Lots of people love food. But if you go online and look at how people talk about pizza, they talk about it like a support network. They talk about it like their their husband or their, you know, it's, it's the food you turn to when you get broken up with or you lose your job. There's no other food that has that connection. So we're just obsessed with that idea that like, why is pizza in the human race so synonymous? And that, the book is kind of about that. That's amazing. I'm super excited. Yeah, it'd be fun. Well, thank you so much for being on Shopify Masters and taking the time. I'm excited for all the things that you guys will do. And yeah, excited to keep updated on your journey. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for having us. It's been, uh, been fun. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Shopify Masters. My name is Shmang Aster Shan. I would love to hear what you thought about this episode, so please leave a review wherever you are listening. Next week, Felix is back with another interesting conversation with a Shopify merchant, so please stay tuned for that. Until next time.